Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman, suddenly realizing that I never completed the part in the script where I transition smoothly from my name to the sorting chat. <laughs> so <laughs> here we are. <laughs> oh, how'd we get here? Wow, magical. This really speaks to where I'm at in this semester. I don't know about you, Hannah, but if it doesn't look like a flashing, glaring error, I don't even see it. Oh, I am barely holding it together. So what do you want to talk about in the sorting chat? Well, I thought that it might be fun, since today we are returning to the topic of animals, mm -hmm. if we considered what magical creature we would love to encounter and why. And I'm thinking that the magical creature in question could be from any genre, any series, any franchise. You know, it could be the Hamburglar if you want. Like, whatever. <laughs> Sorry, what a, what a bull! <laughs> Truly, the Hamburglar is the Robin Hood of the 20th century. <laughs> Stealing from the corporation. Distributing hamburgers to the poor. No, actually, I have an answer to this, and this answer comes with a very brief anecdote, which Ooh. is that on Saturday, my bubble couple, the couple that I am bubbled with, <laughs> came over <laughs> for dinner. I love the term bubble couple. And we were talking about what to watch after dinner, and I was like, oh, have either of you seen uh, Raya and the Dragon? And they had, but also, Sonera was like, God, every time we come over here, you try to get us to watch something with a dragon in it. And I was like, that can't possibly be true. And she was like, yeah, you are always pushing dragon content. You always want to watch things with dragons. And I was like, I don't, I don't think this is an accurate characterization of my media consumption. But now that I think about it, fucking love dragons, man. Mm -hmm. Oh, all of my favorite fantasy novels when I was a kid were the ones that were set in worlds where you get to ride dragons. If there is dragon riding, if there is forming a magical psychic bond with a dragon, mm -hmm. if there is some sort of anything where, like, you meet a dragon and that dragon's like, I choose you, and then you get on that <laughs> dragon and you fly into the sky. That's it. I want to be friends with a dragon. I especially love the dragons in How to Train a Dragon. Okay. Because those dragons are like giant kitties. Oh. That you ride. That's very cute. I have never read these stories. I will have to. How to Train Your Dragon is based on books, but it is a movie. Oh. It's a very sweet animated movie about resisting toxic masculinity while also befriending dragons. So I think you should watch it. 
I think I'm going to stop recording this podcast right now and throw all of my grading out the window and go and watch it immediately. (laughs) What magical creature would you like to encounter? (laughs) Well, I mean, I also really love dragons. That dragons rule! Dragons are awesome. I definitely have like a real passionate interest in unicorns. But to be frank, I don't especially want to meet a unicorn. I mean, maybe that's just the Molly Grew in me because I never will because I missed that opportunity. But for some reason, like I was thinking about this last night and the magical creature that came to mind is Falcor, the luck dragon from A NeverEnding Story, which by the way is too scary for children. Like that movie traumatized me for years, I tried rewatching it as an adult. One, it's very bad. It's not a good movie, <laughs> but it is also devastating. <laughs> it's too, it's too scary and too sad for kids. But maybe that's why Falcor, the luck dragon, like really sticks out to me is like the one like friendly part of the movie <laughs> of an otherwise harrowing film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. For whatever reason, I just find myself very charmed and enchanted by luck dragons in particular. I feel like the favorite childhood movies of millennials really prepared us for what the world would be like because they're all devastating films about (laughs) losing your innocence. (laughs) Ooh, touche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, there's no dragons in this book. That's true. But there's always dragons in my heart. So shall we continue? Oh, let's. Do you ever find yourself partway through a story and you really feel like you know where the plot is going, but you have no recollection of reading it? Is it deja vu? Is it a popular storytelling convention? Not today, Satan. It's revision. The segment where we revisit what we've covered already so we can build on that knowledge with brand new content. So we're returning to animal studies in this episode. I think this is the first time we've circled back around to a theoretical field. Like intentionally. (laughs) Like intentionally. (laughs) Which means that we've got two main jobs in this segment. One, a quick refresh on what we covered in our first episode on animal studies. And two, an expansion of your, Marcel's, extremely important magical creatures chart in light of the new characters we encounter in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I really appreciate your trust in me with doing all of the heavy lifting for this episode by (laughs) updating that chart. (laughs) All right, friends, as you may recall from episode three, Animal Studies is a field interested in cultural representations of animals and what those representations tell us about how we're understanding and constructing the category of the human. So the idea that humans are not animals, that in fact we're defined by our distance from animals, is an ideology, one that produces discourses, specifically forms of knowledge that distinguish humans and animals, that in turn are expressed as tropes that are frequently used to dehumanize certain types and certain categories of people by comparing them to animals. 
So we looked at how feminist scholars like Donna Haraway have challenged this divide by suggesting that humans aren't autonomous, separate creatures, but are rather entangled with each other as well as with animals and technologies. We didn't really talk about cyborgs, but maybe one day we will. We also touched on how Indigenous scholars like Billy Ray Belcourt have critiqued the human-animal divide as a colonial construct, and we spent some time talking about the history of biological racism, particularly how tropes of animality have been used and continue to be used to dehumanize Black people. Definitely. It's also probably worth hearkening back to our discussion of liberalism in Episode 9 about the Gothic. In that episode, we talked about Aragog and the basilisk and the limitations of liberal tolerance, the idea that we should be compassionate towards some forms of difference, but that other forms of difference are way beyond the pale. And Hagrid functions for us as the liminal figure who both is and is not of the wizarding world and the animal world, or the magical creature world, and whose judgment is often framed as being a little bit suspect when it comes to dangerous creatures. I mean, he assigns his students a book that bites. It's not great judgment, <laughs> always. It, it is, in fact, suspect. It's suspect. It's a little suspect. <laughs> but before we dive further into the field of animal studies, Marcel, I need to hear about the new critters we encounter in this book. <laughs> Okay, before I tell you about the updates to the chart, I really want to share that I was trying to come up with a new set of terminology to distinguish humans from non-humans. And the best I could come up with was peeps and creeps. Peeps and creeps. (laughs) You know, like creepy crawlies. But there are so many humans who are creeps in this series that it just didn't seem like a useful set of terms to categorize. So perhaps listeners have some suggestions, some useful suggestions for some fun ways that we can rename these categories of humans and non-humans. And also I have renamed human adjacent to human-ish. And that was another one that I couldn't think of a cute rhyming, like peeps, creeps, and in-betweeps. I don't know. I couldn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't working for me. It's cute terminology, but it's also (laughs) incredibly not functional. (laughs) It's not very functional. And I think it actually does the thing that we are critiquing. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't actually think that we released the chart that I made the first time around. It wasn't very good. So what I've done is I've borrowed from the style of the character alignment chart to sort of simplify how people and creatures, either magic or non-magic, are sort of mapped out in relation to one another. And so what I have along the top axis, I have magical, unclear, and non-magical. And then along the side axis, I have human, and a note that the categories within human are not mutually exclusive, human-ish, and non-human. So in the not mutually exclusive human magical quadrant, I have, you know, witch, wix, whiz for our, you know, magical people, hag. Hypothetically. we never, I don't think we ever meet a hag, but sure. We never meet a hag, No. And then I have werewolf and animagi. Mm. And so werewolf has a double asterisk because the double asterisk notes 
the fact that J.K. Rowling says that this group of people is not human, but we're confident that she's wrong. And especially drawing on the bonus interview that we had with our friend and listener, Lauren, who talked about hybrid vigor and shooting ahead to a book that we have not gotten to yet. But the fact that Lupin is able to parent a child, (laughs) a human child, is indicative of the fact that he is, in fact, still human, J.K. Rowling. Decategorizing him as human is I think troubling in a way that I would love to spend more time talking about as we move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that becoming a werewolf knocks you out of the category of human is um fucked up. It's fucked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the technical term. Especially if you are claiming that werewolfism is like metaphorical, which is um a claim that has often been made about this series. Yes. Yes. Okay, so I don't think we have time to like exhaustively go through every no category here, but can you point to some some interesting ones or some that really stood out to you? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so one of the big changes that happens in this chart of characters and creatures is that we no longer have an example of a magical rat who we know by name. Mm, mm-hmm. Again, these are like unclear if these creatures are magical or if they are I don't know why I've put them in the human cat. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just realizing right now as I'm looking at this that I've made a big goof in the chart and I will fix it before we make it public. But anyway. Yeah, it's really important that everybody knows that currently Marcel has uh, has put owls in under <laughs> human-ish rather than non-human. Snakes, owls, cats, rats, and toads yep. are all in the human-ish yep, They're category. all in the human-ish category. Whereas giant squids, which are significantly more intelligent, are in the non-human category. Listen. Yeah, it's it's a goof. I think what is interesting about the mental exercise of attempting to categorize these different creatures is both how it helps us to think through the very question of categorization or uncategorizability and all of the things that sort of slip through any possible categories, right? So we've got these really clear, like, okay, you're magical and you're a human, cool. You're a witch, a wizard, a wix. Uh, You're non-magical and non-human, you're a dog. (laughs) But then in between, there's all of these contested spaces of like, you know, the human-ish, for example, where you've got goblins and centaurs, where it's like, okay, you know, to what degree is human-ish a legal and political definition that is being leveraged within the wizarding world to strip goblins and centaurs and house elves of their rights? Yes, exactly. And how is it, for example, that a centaur would be less human than an animagi, who is a human who, in fact, becomes a full animal when they transform? So... These are all very sort of complicated, um, complicated things that, as I have categorized them, are really just here for conversation and not at all for like taxonomic <laughs> <Yes>. purposes. <laughs> a decisive <laughs> declaration. But, but the really neat thing I think about what this book does to these categories is that it has introduced all of these characters who you've had to put double asterisks beside or cross out or say are not mutually exclusive because animagi and werewolves in particular really mess with the Mm -hmm. whole human, non-human, human-animal 
divide. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's one, I think one final thing that I think is worth mentioning about what we've added to the chart, at least in this segment. We'll talk about other things later. Flobberworms, right? Uh, it is, in fact, flob. Yeah, no, it's no. not. It's not flobberworms. So, okay, we have added a cat and a dog <laughs> to the list of animals who we know by name. Yep. Now, the cat is, I think, further evidence that, at least in the series, all cats are magical. Yeah. Because our only other named cat who we know is Mrs. Norris. So now we have Crookshanks and Mrs. Norris, both of whom are distinctly magical cats. Mm -hmm. And then we have the addition of Ripper. (laughs) Yes. Aunt Marge's horrible dog, who is definitely not magical and is definitely an asshole. So I believe that this is further evidence that all dogs are not magical. (laughs) Them's fighting words. (laughs) An interesting point of contrast. Anyway, I'll leave the chart there and we'll come back to some of these things as we move into further categories. I guess the only other thing worth mentioning in this segment is something, again, we'll come back to it, but Defense Against the Dark Arts this year is largely focused on creatures. And so then combined with Care of Magical Creatures, we have a bunch of new creatures added to our list mm-hmm. to sort of complicate and, and trouble any kind of strict categorization. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Any kind of strict categorization. And it's really interesting to see that all of those Care of Magical Creatures and all of those Defense Against the Dark Arts creatures are all kind of in this magical non-human category. Which takes us back to that, like, what are the magical non-humans that get cared for? And what are the magical non-humans that get defended against? Mm-hmm. I'm excited to talk about this more. But before we do, I think we could add a few more tools to our theoretical animal studies toolkit. What do you think? I think that sounds great. Let's do it. Now that our backpacks are filled with all this new data, ooh, backpacks full of charts, we're heading directly to Transfiguration Class, the segment where we transfigure what we thought we knew into brand new sets of questions and ideas. Now, Marcel, I used the preparation for this episode as an opportunity to finally read a book that I purchased several years ago at a vegan store in Portland. (laughs) I picked it up because I thought the title was rad. And then it sat on my shelf, as do so many of the books that I purchase, until finally the, the correct moment arrived to read it. And that moment was this one. The book is called Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out. It is by Af Ko. She is the founder of Black Vegans Rock, Particularly, she's sort of an activist and writer and thinker doing organizing work specifically around Black veganism, like working against anti-Black racism and working for animal liberation are not only intersecting struggles, but are actually the same struggle. So that's sort of the whole premise of the book. It's a super interesting book, and I would actually really recommend it to our listeners. Like she opens it by talking about how 
there's a lot of really interesting theory about all of these ideas about, you know, the relation between the human and the animal and like the history of racial categories and how so much of this cutting edge theory is super inaccessible to people outside of the university. And her whole project with this book is to sort of take these theoretical conversations about animals and about white supremacy and bring them like out of academia and make them more accessible. And she particularly does that by like continually tying these arguments into popular culture because her whole argument is that like big theoretical discussions become much more accessible when we connect them to like media and cultural touch points. So I was like, well, <laughs> we are on the same page. Yeah, that interesting is also one of Bell Hooks's big arguments that popular culture is where the pedagogy is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love this. So the project of this book is to further conversations about anti-racism and animal liberation by pointing out that they are not just intersecting struggles, not like, oh, here are these two separate struggles that have some interesting overlaps. Her argument is that they're actually both responses to the violence of white supremacy, which, in her words, uses both minoritized bodies and animality to communicate and reinscribe a mythical fantasy of racial superiority, end quote. So I'm not going to sort of describe the entire book to you. She's got this whole really interesting argument about witchcraft as a way of, of conceiving of how white supremacy operates. And so she writes at one point, quote, to have the power to ingest someone's soul and to restuff their essence with your own is one of the unique tenets of racial terrorism. The ways in which the dominant class gets to determine whose life matters and whose doesn't, as well as who is human and who is animal, constitutes a zoological sport, end quote. Ooh. That's what has been making me think about this whole, like, zoological categorization of things is, by its very nature an attempt to say, like, you know, who constitutes the human and who doesn't. And we see that all over the place in these books, all over the place in Hogwarts in terms of how it's structured. This constant sort of conceptual dehumanization, which for Coe both animalizes people of color, but also anchors animal oppression to race. So she's basically like animal oppression is itself a sort of racialized power dynamic. It's not just about sort of who's human and not human, it's who's white, because whiteness and humanness become overlapping categories, right? So who's on the inside, who's on the outside. Right. So the, I think, central argument that she's making is that animals can't be read as a metaphor for people of color or vice versa, because their oppression is so intertwined. Ah, mm-hmm. And she goes on to argue, and I think this is really pertinent to what we are doing in this in the project of this podcast. She goes on to argue that we need to undiscipline our thinking by breaking out of these colonial categories of race, gender, class, etc. She writes, the social categories were born out of an oppressive system, the very system activists are claiming to fight, end quote. So, you know, this is a thing we've come back to time and again. Like we try to talk about gender and we're like, oh, you absolutely cannot talk about gender without talking about race and class. We try to talk about animals and it's like, oh, can't talk about animals without also talking about uh, race and colonialism and feminist interventions. And like we're pulling out these conversations 
for functional reasons, right? Because it's hard to talk about everything always at the same time. And so you pull out a thing like animal studies and say, okay, here's an interesting lens. Or we, you know, pull things into a chart and say, oh, this is an interesting lens. But there's this really important piece of doing any of this analytical thinking where you always have to be not only critiquing the object of study, but also critiquing the very lenses through which you are reading things and what is visible or invisible as a function of those lenses. Mm-hmm. It's making me think about this thing that I'm I'm constantly telling my students, which is that it's always easier to see someone else's ideology than your own. And so one of the reasons why using this lens to look at Harry Potter is so effective is because we can see how the ideological division between human and non-human functions at the level of Harry Potter in a way that it's really hard for us to see in the world that we live in. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's part of why cultural texts are so good to think with, because they sort of externalize these things in a way that we can look at them and understand how they're operating a little bit better. And these kinds of like disciplines of knowledge are also good to think with, right? Animal studies helps us see things we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And also sort of invites us to keep coming back and being like, you know, what do we miss when we use one lens and not another? For example, you know, what do we miss if we go immediately to the desire to think about magical creatures as metaphors for the operations of race in the wizarding world, right? That when we want to swap those things out and say, this animal isn't an animal, the animal's a metaphor for humans, you know, are we missing this way in which the whole point of how white supremacy operates is that the minoritized human and the animal aren't metaphors for each other, they are different iterations of the same kind of system of power that says we get to sort of label and control and dominate everything that is outside of sort of the the dominant ruling class. Yeah. And we see through history that like white people have treated non-white people as stock, like the same term that we would use to describe, you know, cattle or horses. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's an opportunity. And I think particularly when thinking about Buckbeak mm-hmm. and about Lupin and maybe about Sirius as well. Mm-hmm. But to think here about how sort of the animalized other, like the monstrous, not quite human other, points us in the direction of thinking about how categorizing people as non-human is an act of violence and how that violence is expressed in terms of both racial violence and violence against animals, that those are sort of both systems of violence that are operating here. You know, like we don't have to think about Buckbeak as being a metaphor, right? We can think about Buckbeak as an animal. Right. And I think there are ways in which the novel invites us to set up Buckbeak and Sirius as not being metaphors one for the other, but rather as two subjects on the receiving end of like a violent, oppressive system of power. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 
I really want to dig deeper into that. Before we do, I want to add one thing, which is that Co acknowledges throughout the book that there are lots of reasons why, particularly people of color, push back against these kinds of linkings between racial violence and violence against animals, mm-hmm. including things like how readily a lot of white activists and white theorists leap to trying to sort of rehumanize both animals and like things, like the object world at the expense of actually doing meaningful work on racial justice. Mm-hmm. How much easier it is sometimes for white people to imagine humanizing a lamp than to imagine actually fighting actively for the rights of people of color. And how often white veganism has been used as a tool to justify violence against black people and indigenous people and people of color. We particularly see that in like PETA's campaign against the seal hunt, which has systematically deprived Inuit people of one of their traditional forms of making money, just one of their traditional economies and practices and has vilified them in a way that is just fundamentally colonial and racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like there is a reason why this work has sometimes been at odds. And I think it is really important to keep that in mind. And I also think, you know, her book is really interesting. And I think invites some some rethinking that I think might help us understand pieces of this book in different ways. I love that. I think that's a really useful reminder, especially because when we turn to Buck Beacon Sirius to look at them a bit more carefully, we should also remember that Buck Beak who is a creature, and Sirius, who is a white person, can neither of them stand in as metaphors for people of color. Yes, precisely. All right. Shall we dive deeper into this book? Let's do Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do it. You know we love any excuse for a sound effect. Cat. Werewolf. Capitalism. Old man white literary critic. Blah, 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 blah. Thank goodness it's time for Owls. A very serious segment in which we put our updated theoretical knowledge into practice. It is not at all an excuse for silly, not serious sound effects. Absolutely not. This is a serious podcast. There's no whimsy here. Absolutely not. So what we really want to ask is how the new creatures that we encounter in Prisoner of Azkaban put pressure on our previous cat agories of magical (laughs) and non-magical creatures. I raised this point when we were talking about the chart, but just as a quick example, we now have two cats. We have Mrs. Norris and we have Crookshanks, both of whom are distinctly smarter than, like, my cats. Yeah, my cats my cats are not, like, <laughs> helping, <laughs> helping 
bring people to justice <laughs> by like stealing lists and bringing them to people. Like, no, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> so we return to the question Are all cats magical in this universe, or are these two cats endowed with magical powers that our very bad cats are not? It's such an important question. And it's so when we see other magical creatures, we encounter them in the wizarding world. We don't encounter any banal creatures that turn out to have magical abilities. I'm saying this very slowly because I'm trying to test it in my head. Like, we think Scabbers is an ordinary rat because he's distinguished from those other rats at the magic pet store that like do cool tricks. Yeah. But it turns out that he's the opposite of an ordinary rat. He's in fact not a rat at all. Right. He is a metaphorical rat, but... He's a real rat, that guy. <laughs> and then we think that we see it like a ominous dog, mm-hmm. but that dog also turns out to just be a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And when we encounter regular animals, quote unquote, regular animals, mundane animals, Harry can talk to the snake, but the snake is still a snake. Mm-hmm. Like Aunt Marge's dogs seem to just be dogs. But we don't meet any mundane cats, nor do we meet any mundane owls. That's right. And so I think it remains very unclear textually whether... All cats and all owls are magical and muggles just don't notice. Or these are special magical owls and cats. I would say that the presence of magical rats at the pet store would suggest the latter. Mm -hmm. That they're different. That they've somehow been imbued with magic. Because there's a distinction made between like, A regular rat you'd get at a pet store and then the magic rat you would get in Diagon Alley. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But is it still only certain types of animals that can be magical? You know, like I'm thinking about Fang, who is Hagrid's boarhound. Fang! And I don't know if any of you listeners out there knew this, but like boarhound is just another word for Great Dane. And I don't... (laughs) Oh, that's news to me. That's news to me as of this second right now. And so, like, not only is Fang a regular dog breed that you can get anywhere, (laughs) but he's the only example of a dog that is a dog in the magical world. Just a big, good dog. So, again, is it that dogs are already, like, maybe sufficiently connected to humans that they don't need to be magicalized? I don't know. I really don't know. (laughs) Okay, listen. These questions are too hard. Let's move on to something easier. Let's talk about the characterization of the different human-animal relationships. Yeah, so I think this is really interesting when we're thinking about the relationship between the human and the animal and how connection to animals is often treated as suspect Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is interesting, particularly in the light of sort of Coe's ideas about domination and white supremacy. And so we repeatedly see these characters who like animals a little bit too much or who, you know, humanize their animals a little bit too much or who don't properly understand how 
animals at the end of the day are not humans and treat them with the according suspicion. And so we've got, you know, a little bit of that with like Hermione likes Crookshanks a little too much (laughs) because she's willing to let her cat murder her friend's pet. It's she does lack some boundaries, I would say. Yeah, some lack of boundaries with that cat, right? And then Ron also, you know, his relationship with Scabbers ends up being cast as a little suspect. Mm-hmm. Because Scabbers does turn out to be an adult man. Yeah. That's awkward. It's a very sinister turn of events. And then, you know, Filch with Mrs. Norris and Aunt Marge with Ripper. Like, these are all examples of of characters who it's like, oh, you like an animal too much. That means there's something off about you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think our biggest example of that is, is Hagrid. You know, he's a good guy. He's a lovable character. He's one of the heroes. But he is, as as we saw in the last book, he is constantly framed by the text as trusting animals too much, as having poor judgment when it comes to what animals are safe and which ones are dangerous, mm-hmm. as like not knowing where to place those boundaries. And I think there's a frequently an implicit, and it becomes increasingly explicit as the series goes on, connection between his over-trusting of animals and his being half-giant. Mm-hmm. Because giants are cast in the wizarding world as non-human. That's right. So Hagrid is not quite human. And so that ties into his being overly sympathetic towards the non-human. Mm-hmm. And the text does this thing, you know, like we talked about in episode nine, where it's like, sometimes that's good, mm-hmm. but there can be too much of a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes it's dangerous and silly, and our good, reasonable, like, white men characters mm-hmm. are good at recognizing those boundaries. Right. Right? And and know where to, like, properly erect the boundary between the human and the non-human, and know how to have, you know, Harry knows how to have a pet, yeah. you know? He yes. and Hedwig have a, their relationship is the <laughs> right way. Yes. You know, and... and and Dumbledore knows, you know, and, and Lupin knows, you know, what animals you need to defend yourself against and, and which ones you don't, you know. So there is, I think, something happening in not just in the way the book itself categorizes these creatures, but in the way that it tells us to trust or not trust characters yes. by their successful upholding of these proper and naturalized categories Mm -hmm. and sometimes that is about being more compassionate right sometimes Mm -hmm. it's about the fact that like harry you know treats house elves well and that he talks to goblins and that he you know like that he doesn't do some of these things but again it's like harry treats house elves properly hermione takes it too far yeah so this conversation about hagrid is making me want to revisit the scene in book two, when Harry and Ron, so they're in the Forbidden Forest and they're meeting Aragog and Aragog like looses his millions of offspring on them. And so this, I think, like in line with what we're saying about like how the book wants us to judge Hagrid is supposed to provide us with evidence that like Hagrid is mistaken. Yes. But I think if we resist that 
that framing, we might think about why it is that Hagrid is able to have this relationship with a spider who would otherwise allow his millions of offspring to feed on the bodies of two two tween boys. So, <laughs> so I think with these tools, we can resist the narratives that the text is giving to us and think about like, how might we question the assumptions that we make as we're reading and as we're sort of like, ooh, yeah, Hagrid takes it too far. And ooh, yeah, Hermione is taking it too far. So examining those sort of knee-jerk reactions that we have and maybe pushing our ideas a little bit on that front. Yeah. For those who don't know what we're talking about, we're referring forward in the series to Spew and Hermione's house elf activism, which we will talk about so much more when we get to the appropriate books. Yes. But I do think this conversation about Hagrid and the question of him taking it too far in terms of his trust of potentially dangerous creatures Leads us, I think, to a conversation about Buckbeak. Yes, I think that's a great idea. You know, that initial encounter we have with the hippogriffs invites us to think about these creatures as dangerous if interacted with improperly, Mm -hmm. fine if respected. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear that, like, Draco brings it on himself He is not listening to instructions. He is not being respectful. He mishandles this potentially dangerous creature. He gets hurt as a result. And then what Buckbeak is subject to is sort of the immediate retaliation of the state, which is very clearly figured in the book as an extension of white supremacist and capitalist power mm-hmm. in the form of the Malfoy family, mm-hmm. right? That we constantly see the way that they are able to just reach into and extend the state as an arm of their own power. Mm-hmm. And so Buckbeak immediately gets sort of sucked into the system that like it's a one-way track to a public execution for this hippogriff. Yeah. And so this is where I was like, okay, thinking about Coe's sort of pushing back on the metaphorical. Mm-hmm. And thinking then instead about how, like, Buckbeak is not necessarily a, a metaphor, mm-hmm. right? For the, for example, the the state's violent power against people of color. That if we say, no, it's not metaphorical, he is an animal. Mm-hmm. And so what we are seeing here is sort of the way that the state as an arm of white supremacy gets to reach out and be the ultimate determinant of what animals are safe and what animals are not. Right. Of what a proper relationship is, of what gets to be inside and what gets to be outside. And so I'm thinking this through out loud because this is what this this segment is always (laughs) is for me at least. (laughs) But there's something interesting there in that, like, we are encouraged to respect the characters who know how these boundaries should work and who can navigate them and uphold them properly, these boundaries between the human and the animal, while simultaneously being shown that the state should not be allowed to make those choices. Right. So one of the things that's happening with Hagrid as the care of magical creatures instructor or professor is that he knows that hippogriffs are 
capable of significant damage. And when he introduces the students to the hippogriffs, he's very clear. Like, so the students are afraid, and rightly so, Mm -hmm. because humans exist in the world with these creatures. We don't have authority over them. And so Hagrid is introducing the students to a way of respectfully engaging with these creatures because they don't have authority and so they can't control the behavior of the creature. Like, while it does result in injury, this is, I think, actually a really valuable lesson for (laughs) these students, which is that you can't just act any way you want. Like, using real Alberta, Canada example, you can't go hiking in the wilderness with a backpack full of, like, peanut butter sandwiches and a hunk of roast beef and not expect to be in danger if you encounter a bear or if you encounter a cougar, right? So like there are quite real limits to the expression of human authority over the animal. And so being educated in safe relational practices makes a lot of sense. And so then what we see happen is Draco does not listen He is deliberately disrespectful to Buckbeak. He gets injured. And rather than having to face the consequences of his own hubris, he being like representative of white supremacy and his family are able to then reach out and define this otherwise autonomous creature as being dangerous, even though we know that he's not dangerous if you interact with him respectfully mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. it's just uh! it's, it's it's interesting i think to know how continually the question of like interacting with them respectfully interacting with them not respectfully like how that is so constantly filtered for us through you know these white male characters who do it right or wrong right yes you know and, and thinking out to other pieces of the franchise, right? Like we've got Newt Scamander as this model of like, when you've got the right attitude, all these magical creatures that might seem dangerous are actually your friends. But like, you know, what that right attitude is, is a sort of like zoological comprehension and categorization of those animals, Mm -hmm. right? A sort of ability to control them. And part of that control entails respect, but it is still a certain kind of dominance, Mm, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, do we have any models in this book of people who are like throwing out the whole premise of hierarchy and dominance? Hmm. Or do we only have models of people who like use their dominance well or use their dominance badly? Hmm. That's a really good question. My immediate thought is no, that there's always the assumption of control and like learning the tools to control. I mean, I think the closest thing we have is is Hagrid, mm-hmm. right? Who is somebody yeah. who who really seems, you know, to the greatest degree of any characters we see, seems to be disinterested in hierarchies and dominance, disinterested in categorizing, you know, some things as too dangerous or too beyond the pale and some things as safe Hmm. you know that 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 there's a sort of seed of something quite radical in how 
Hagrid approaches the world, but that the narrative tells us over and over again that he is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about, and this is maybe going to take us away from Buckbeak. I'll allow it. <laughs> but what about thinking about Sirius, James, and Peter and their friendship with Lupin? So can we think about their willingness to learn how to transform into animals as a way of keeping their friend who cannot help but turn into an animal, like keeping their friend company, like being companions. Can we think about that maybe in terms of a radical rejection of hierarchy and instead like a willingness to approach animality as a kind of new way of being. Yeah, I actually I really I really like that. I think that there's something really interesting in that that you know when this thing happens to their friend that is certainly we see within the wizarding world is framed as like it turns you into a monster who cannot be in society with other people. That that's you know very clear at the end of the book when it comes out that Lupin's a werewolf, he has to leave. And there's a little bit of like Lupin sort of saying like, actually, yes, that is true. I am too dangerous, which I don't think is fair, but could just be sort of internalized. Yeah, yeah. Like the internalization of these oppressive narratives. But, you know, despite that being the dominant understanding of werewolves in wizarding society, his friend's response is not to cast him out or reject him or to necessarily to like, chain him up or control him but to transform themselves in a way that lets them understand him better and lets them be closer to him that is really interesting and it's a thread that is sort of picked up and then dropped right like the fact of harry's father being an animagus the idea of taking up this powerful magical possibility and transforming yourself never comes up again in the rest of the series, really. Yeah, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. But I think you're right. I think that the presence of these animagi who specifically use their magic to have a friendship with a werewolf Mm -hmm. points us towards how the animagi is an acceptable form mm-hmm. of human animal boundary crossing can challenge the vilification of werewolves and other kinds of magical creatures that it does fuck with that boundary mm-hmm. and it does it in all kinds of ways like the heightened relationship with Crookshanks mm-hmm. that Sirius has you know his ability to sort of really see the potential that Crookshanks has You know, even the link that is made between Sirius and Buckbeak and both of them escaping from this oppressive system. Mm -hmm. There's something interesting there. I don't think the text really takes us all the way. Definitely not. No. But two, if we think about the fact that like Animagi still need to be controlled by the ministry. Documented. Yep. Yeah. You're expected to register with the ministry so that the ministry will know who has the ability to become an animal. And the fact that these three kids didn't (laughs) is wonderful. (laughs) Never, like not even when they graduated from Hogwarts. (laughs) They're just like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. No, thank you. (laughs) 
none of your business. You know, their refusal of the state's power in that sense and the refusal of sort of, you know, the coercive desire of the ministry to be surveilling everyone, you know, extends to how being an animagus helps Sirius to survive Azkaban. Mm-hmm. Because when he changes into a dog, the Dementors can't hurt him as much. You know, so there is something like, and eventually he's able to get out because he can transform. And because he his is a transformation that they did not know he was capable of before they put him in there. Hypothetically, they would have put him in like a... <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't know. A doghouse. <laughs> A cell with narrower bars? I don't, I don't, I don't don't know. know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I think when we start to unpack these things and see how entangled they all are, right? That like the whole question of the animal and like the otherness and the danger of the animal is like indivisible in these books from questions of the power of the state, surveillance technologies, violent forms of punishment they're so tangled up together Mm. oh my goodness maybe the last the last thing that i would like us to contemplate a little bit the curricular decisions that place some animals in care of magical creatures Mm -hmm. or some creatures in care of magical creatures some creatures in defense against the dark arts and some creatures in herbology yeah (laughs) Like the mandrakes. (laughs) I mean, so on one level, I want to ask who decides what's what. And then on another level, I want to be like, the answer to that is less important than the question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? It's less important to, at the end of the day, to say who decided that a mandrake is a plant and not an animal than to point out that Hogwarts itself is an institution that categorizes creatures into certain domains of knowledge Mm -hmm. and that sort of coercively frames your relationship with them by telling you before you encounter them, this is a creature that you care for. This is a plant that you harvest. This is a dark thing you defend yourself against. Yeah. Yeah. It would be really, really interesting to have a case where both care of magical creatures and defense against the dark arts are introducing students to the way that you engage with, like the same creature, you know? Imagine Hagrid introducing students to Bogarts and being like, Bogarts are actually not anything to be afraid of. You just have to know how to de-escalate the situation. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like when they turn into your greatest fear, you just have to resist that trap Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then they'll go away. (laughs) They just want a backpack full of peanut butter sandwiches and roast beef. It's true. And they'll leave you alone. But like, let's go back to the mandrake though, okay? Because the mandrake, like as long as you're wearing earmuffs, the mandrake can't hurt you. And so I understand why it's in herbology, but I don't understand why we would also not encounter it in these other classes. Probably because you can do something useful with it. Mm. Right? So Because you can harvest it, as you said. You can harvest it, yeah. And maybe that's also the case with, you know, care of magical creatures, is that at the end of the day, if there is use value, then it's worth learning how to 
you know, use these things. You know, Buckbeak does end up having use value. Yeah, yeah. And if there isn't, then what you learn to do is get rid of them. That's right. That's right. Because it's care of magical creatures and not magical creature wizard relations. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Well, I feel like we wrapped that up. No questions remaining. <laughs> so many questions remaining. Oh my gosh. Is it weird that Lupin keeps a Grindelo prisoner in a fish tank in his office? Is that weird? Or is that, is it like having a fish? <laughs> is, it, is it weird to have a fish? Listen, <laughs> I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I have only more questions. <laughs> That is indeed our MO. <laughs> no answers. <laughs> Only, Only questions. <laughs> Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 16 of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel gradually devolve into just making meaningless noises. And listen, the list is short today, which means that I am getting shortchanged on my truly greatest pleasure. So I need more of you to go. <laughs> more of you and make up sillier names. Go. Oh, boy. Okay. Thanks this week to Fish Cake, but fish is with a Y. Very cool. Brianna, or maybe, yeah, it's probably Brianna. Brianna L. Any direction, which is what I would like, literally, any direction at all in my life. And a group of letters that I believe means hammock. It's H-A-M-M-A-H-C. It could be Hamasi. It could be Hamasi, but I like Hammock. I mean, I also like you, whoever you are, who gave us a five-star review. So thank you for that. Thank you all. <laughs> if you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash witch please to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you and to participate in, uh, I believe, <laughs> to come watch along of uh, how to train your dragon. <laughs> Ooh, goody. <laughs> On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with a whole new focus. But until then, later, witches. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.